بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. So we continue إن شاء الله تعالى with our discussion on أصول التفسير. And uh, in our discussion on Usul al-Tafsir, we reached the, and we briefly explained the second category. In these two categories we were speaking of, in which you uh, might perceive there to be a difference when in fact there is no difference in the Tafsir at all or there is nothing contradictory about the two different kinds of tafsir. So the first one we mentioned was focusing on a particular aspect rather than another. And to give an example of that in a way we can understand, we said we could refer to this as a tablet, or we could refer to it as an iPad, or we could refer to it as an Apple device, or we could refer to it as where I have my notes. All of those are different elements, but all of them are referring to the same object. So likewise, in the tafsir of the Qur'an, people may mention different tafsir, different parts of tafsir, but in reality, they are simply mentioning different elements of the same thing, focusing on the same object. And an example of this, we talked about the names of Allah Azza wa Jal, how the names of Allah all refer to Allah, yet they all have a different meaning to them and a different aspect to them. The second category we mentioned briefly at the end of the class, and inshallah what we'll do now is just expand upon that a little bit, which is to mention by way of example and illustration some aspects uh, of the, or some examples of the general term without defining the boundaries of it. So the meaning of this is you ask somebody, for example, as the example is given here, somebody says, what is bread? and you show them an example of one kind of bread, that does not mean that you have said that this, this thing here is bread and there is nothing which is bread apart from this one particular thing which I have shown you today. Rather, you're giving them an example. And we could use the tablet example again. If someone were to say, okay, and I've been locked up and for the last like 10 years, I have no idea what a tablet is. So I show him this iPad. Does that mean that somebody's Samsung Galaxy tablet is not a tablet? No. It's simply that I'm showing him one example of that particular thing. And that does not mean that I have excluded all of the other things from it. And this is extremely common in tafsir. Especially because, as we said, defining the boundaries of something is quite difficult to do. It's not easy to define something thoroughly in a way that is both comprehensive and restricts the 
the things you don't want to be a part of it. It's actually quite difficult to define something. And so generally, especially in the early scholars of tafsir, they would not try to define a term in such a way that it leaves no room for anything else. They would just give an example of that particular thing. Now we come to the example given by Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala in the book. He said an example of this is the Quranic verse Surah Fatir, ayah number 32. So, first of all, the meaning here, or just to, to get to the heart of it, what is the meaning of ظالمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ? There are three categories mentioned here. ظالمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ And what is the meaning of المُقْتَصِد? And what is the meaning of سَابِقٌ بِالْخَيْرَاتِ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ so the linguistic meaning is somebody who oppresses themselves. And muqtasid is someone who is in the middle. They are not like at the very top of the tree, nor are they at the bottom. And they are in the middle in terms of, oh, they're just, they're doing what is needed. And then there is sabiqun bil khayrati bi'idnillah, the one who is racing ahead in doing good. So look at the tafsir of the scholars for this ayah. What do they say about the one who is ظالمٌ لِنَفْسِهِ And what do they say about the one who is in the middle? Like who is, you could say, moderate in doing good. And what do they say about the one who is racing ahead foremost in doing good deeds by the permission of Allah? So what you see here are lots of examples. First of all, Shaykh Islam Taymiyyah gives a general understanding of the ayah. He says, those who wrong themselves are those who do not perform the obligatory duties and fall into the haram. So that is the, those who wrong themselves. The moderate are those who fulfill their obligations and refrain from prohibitions. And the foremost are those who do optional acts too. So the moderate people will be the people of the right i.e. the people generally who are given their book in their right hand, and the foremost will be those who are the best of them, the foremost of them, uh, those who are brought near to Allah. However, each one of these can be described by the way they perform a certain act. So it can be said the foremost are those who pray their daily prayers at the earliest time. And the moderate are those who pray within the allotted duration and those who wrong themselves are the ones who delay the prayer until the time is about to, about to pass. Likewise, it could be said that the one who is racing ahead in good is the one who gives charity. And the one who is oppressing themselves is the one who deals in interest. 
and the one who is moderate is the one who trades in that which is halal without giving any extra charity from what they have. Or in another way you could say, the one who oppresses themselves is the one who deals in riba, and the moderate is the one who gives the zakah, and the one who is foremost is the one who gives optional charity on top of the zakah that they give. These examples are just giving examples of, uh, they are simply giving examples, they are not limiting it to that. So when you read in Tafsir ibn Kathir, for example, it is said that those who oppress themselves are those who deal with riba. And those who are moderate are those who give the zakah. And those who are racing ahead are those who give voluntary charity. Or it is said that those who oppress themselves are the ones who leave the prayer until the very end of the time. And maybe, you know, they, they leave themselves in a state where they almost miss the prayer. And those who are moderate pray the prayer within the allotted time. And those who are racing ahead pray the prayer at the earliest time with the jama'ah, for example. These two opinions are not contradictory. They are simply examples given to illustrate the concept. None of them completely, com completely cover the concept. If you want to completely cover the concept, then you want to basically say that the one who wrongs themselves is the one who does sins and leaves off obligatory deeds and the one who is moderate is the one who just sticks to what is obligatory and nothing else and the one who is racing ahead is the one who does the voluntary deeds this is the comprehensive description however i can give examples i can give examples the one who wrongs himself is the one who misses some of the prayers the one who is moderate is the one who prays their five prayers a day but doesn't pray anything else and the one who is racing ahead is the one who prays their sunnah prayers and voluntary prayers. So ultimately you have here lots and lots of examples and you could keep on giving examples. That doesn't mean that you have lots and lots of types of tafsir. It only means that you are just illustrating a particular issue with many examples just like you could take many different types of bread, flat bread, sliced bread, French bread, you know, home-baked bread. And for each one, you could say this is bread. And each one of them would be valid. So this is the example mentioned here. And the author mentions uh, that this is easier then defining something with an absolute definition. Uh, as an example of that, if you were to be asked to describe a camel or to explain a camel to somebody who had never seen a camel before, which is easier? To say, okay, it's a large animal and uh, you know it could be this color or this color and it has this kind of legs and it has, sometimes it has a hump but it might not have a hump. Or just to point at somebody and say, that, that, that's a camel. It's a lot easier to point to, some, to a camel and say that this is a camel than it is to describe exactly what a camel is and what a camel isn't.
For this reason, many scholars of fiqh define terms with their rulings in order to make it easy to understand. So saying that an obligatory act is that which causes the doer to be rewarded rather than saying an obligatory act is the one which the legislator has ordered by necessity. So instead of being very technical about giving a very detailed definition of what the thing is, they give the definition by the result. So they say the result of it is that you get rewarded for doing it and you get punished for leaving it. That's the result of an obligatory deed. That's not a very good definition necessarily of an obligatory deed in the sense that you could define it by that which the legislator has made obligatory by necessity upon those which are mukallafin and so on and so forth. You could make a long definition for what an obligatory deed is. Or you could just explain it by the result and say the result is that if you do it, you get rewarded and if you don't do it, you make yourself liable to punishment. And we went through those issues as well, so we can move on to the next point. From this category is also the statement, the reason this verse was revealed was due to such and such, especially if it was due to a person. Uh, that does not mean because the verse was revealed that does not mean, as we have read or we will have read in the other uh, text that we gave you, that does not mean that the verse is limited to that particular case. But it is only giving an example of the application of that verse. So to say that the verse or the ayah was revealed concerning the ansar, for example, or concerning so-and-so. That does not mean that the ayah is restricted to that person, or that the ayah was only revealed for the purpose of that particular person, but that that represents an example by which you can understand the application of the ayah, nothing more than that. And there's a very famous statement, that the, what we give consideration to in the Quran is the generality of the meaning, the meaning being general, rather than the specific nature of the reason the ayah was revealed. So it's not the case that we, if an ayah was revealed regarding a particular person, we only apply it to that particular person. Or the ayah was revealed regarding the ansar, that it only applies to the ansar and not to the muhajireen. Or that the ayah was revealed with regard to, for example, those who took the war booty or take the war booty that does not mean that the ayah is restricted to that it only means that this is one example by which you can understand the application of the ayah uh, and this is important because many many ayat in the Quran were revealed about very specific situations but the ayah was intended to be general the author gives the example do not cause your own hands to bring about your own destruction or do not throw yourself with your own hands into uh, destruction it says 
that this reverse was re this verse or this ayah was revealed concerning the ansar however do we now limit this ayah to the ansar no this ayah is general for everyone prohibiting everyone who brings about their own destruction by with the, by their own doing by their own hands so it covers suicide and it covers people who, uh, for example, who smoke and cause themselves to die, or people who take drugs and cause themselves to die, and so on. All of these are covered within the ayah, even though the ayah was revealed regarding a very particular group of people and a very particular reason. That particular group and reason is nothing more than an example of which there are many, many other examples. But it's a useful example that allows you to understand. So why is it mentioned this ayah was revealed regarding so-and-so? This ayah was revealed regarding so-and-so. It's mentioned because it helps you to understand the application of the ayah. Because you can understand it was replied to the Ansar in this particular situation, in this circumstance. And therefore you can understand better the ruling behind the ayah. But that does not mean that the ayah is restricted to that particular group of people. As the author said, rather the most that can be said is that these verses apply to all those who are similar to the person for which it was revealed. And the wording is not generalized to the limits which the language allows. I mean, in other words, any you the the most you can restrict an ayah in this way the maximum restriction you can apply is to say that it is restricted to those people who are similar to the person that it was revealed for i.e the similar circumstances author says knowledge of the reasons for which a verse was revealed assists one in understanding that ayah for knowledge of the cause helps to bring about knowledge of the result knowledge of the cause helps to bring about knowledge of the result for this reason the stronger of the two opinions concerning a person who forgets the oath he took is that he returned to the reason which caused him to take the oath in the first place what caused it and what led to it this is an example outside of the quran but it's an example which illustrates the point that knowing the cause helps you to know the result knowing the cause helps you to know the result and this is something which applies to fiqh in general and when we come to usul al-fiqh we'll talk about knowing knowing the reason or knowing the cause between behind certain rulings and how that allows us knowing the illa cause or the reason and how that allows us to better understand the intended result Sheikh uh, Ibn mentions a benefit in this and he says it may even be the case that the meaning of an ayah or a hadith 
is not understood unless we, understood the, unless we understand the cause for which it was revealed. There are certain ayat that the meaning is not clear or the intended meaning is not clear unless you know the, the cause for it. The next point they make, or the next point the author makes, uh, their statement, this verse was revealed due to such and such. And this is where we have to be careful. And it's even more difficult in the English language because the, the, the translator may not convey the accuracy of this meaning into English. And if they don't, then you could end up misunderstanding the tafsir of the ayah because the translator didn't, wasn't careful about the wording used to transmit. And I'll give an example of that in hadith. As you know, there is a big difference, for example, between sami'na, we heard, and between an, it was narrated from someone. Whether the translator in English brings that difference to you is up to them. And if they don't, you may judge a hadith to be authentic because the translator conveyed it in such words that indicated it was authentic. And yet actually the translator missed the fact that the, uh, there was, for example, uh, what we call Sirat al-Tamrib, for example, it was said, it has been said, instead of he said. Very, very, very difficult to bring these terms exactly and precisely and that is why we have a problem which is often that many people who translate are not experts in the field if the person who is translating the book of tafsir was an expert in tafsir then in this next point they would bear it in mind and they would make sure that they were accurate in the translation of this particular statement that we're going to cover however most translators are not they are simply people who speak both English and Arabic, nothing more than that. And so they translate things. And I remember editing a book of hadith, a book of mustalah al-hadith, uh, when I used to do book editing. And the mistakes in it were huge. And the mistakes that the translator had made were so much so that they had completely turned around the science of hadith from top to bottom. And yet the only thing that they were guilty of is just not knowing the science of hadith. So they didn't understand what the terms meant and they didn't understand the nuances in the language that are used by the people of that science. And so they translated them just as you would translate, you know, any translation, any particular words. And so they didn't understand what those words meant properly. And therefore they didn't use those words in the right context and gave people the wrong understanding. So this is now down to this issue of the verse was revealed due to such and such. The verse was revealed due to such and such. Sheikh Murtaymin mentions there are three expressions that could be used with regard to why a verse was revealed. The first one, such and such happened then the following verse was revealed. 
such and such happened, then the following verse was revealed. That's number one. Number two, the reason such and such a verse was revealed was because of such and such. The reason that this ayah was revealed is such and such. The reason this ayah was revealed is such and such. Number three, the verse was revealed due to such and such. So let's go through them again. Number one, something happened, then the ayah was revealed. Number two, the reason the ayah was revealed was such and such. And number three, the, the ayah was revealed due to such and such. Which one of those three is the most explicit in being the reason for the ayah revealed? Have a think about that for a second. Which one of the three is the one that you can authoritatively say that if this is the wording used, then this is a definitive course? It's number two. Number two. The first one is 50-50. The last one may not have any connection to the cause of revelation at all. So the middle one, the reason the ayah was revealed is dot, dot, dot. This is clear, that this is specifically speaking about the reason the ayah was revealed. As for such and such happened, and then the ayah was revealed, this is still giving a link between the two events. But it's not necessarily clear that the ayah was revealed for sure about that event. It only tells you that, that chronologically, somebody did this, then the ayah was revealed. It indicates to you, yes, that it's likely the ayah was revealed because of that event. But it doesn't tell you that definitively or authoritatively. It doesn't tell you for certain. It simply tells you that this event happened, this ayah was revealed. For example, we came back from the Battle of Badr and this ayah was revealed. Does that mean necessarily guaranteed that the ayah was revealed regarding the Battle of Badr? Not necessarily. It just gives you a chronological order that while we were returning, this ayah was revealed. So it gives you a 50-50 association. However, the ayah was revealed due to, this is the least authoritative due to it may mean the meaning of the ayah for example we could say regarding the ayah don't throw yourself with your own hands into destruction this ayah was revealed due to those people who seek to harm themselves or due to a person who seeks to harm himself. This doesn't necessarily mean this was the reason for the revelation of the ayah. It could refer to the meaning as well. The next issue attached to that, when a companion says, this ayah was revealed due to such and such. So when a companion uses that third statement, 
is this equivalent to a hadith or not? Is this equivalent to a hadith or not? Or could it be the companion explaining what they understood? The majority of the scholars considered that it is not a hadith. When a companion says, this ayah was revealed due to such and such, that it is not given the level of a hadith. Some of the scholars, including Al-Bukhari, considered it to be a hadith. And its level, it's equal to what the Prophet said. However, if all of the companions are known, or many of the companions, and there's not known to be any opposition, they, they say that this ayah was revealed due to such and such, then it is given the level of a hadith. So in other words, when a companion says the ayah was revealed due to, is that equal to a hadith or is it just the opinion of the companion? The majority said it's just the opinion of the companion unless it is narrated by all of the companions, in which case it becomes a, a narration. Why did Ibn Taymiyyah go into this topic? Why did we suddenly end up on Asbab al-Nuzul? There's a very clear reason for it and he's going to mention it now. If this is known and a person states this ayah was revealed due to this, this does not contradict a similar statement from someone else as long as the word can include both meanings as we have explained when discussing tafsir by example. This is the kind of final level of understanding this issue. If you've understood that this could only refer to just a tafsir of the, of, the, of the ayah, then it's perfectly possible that someone could say this ayah was revealed due to such and such and someone else could say this ayah was revealed due to such and such and the two would not be contradictory. That is the, that's the reason why Sheikh Islam mentions this in his book because in this part he's trying to show you how many 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 different types of tafsir are perceived by people to be contradictory when in fact they are not contradictory at all as long as the wording can encompass both of them and the two of them are not contradictory like one of them says this ayah was revealed to declare this to be haram and one of them says this ayah was revealed to declare this to be halal then yes this is contradictory but in the vast majority of cases when someone says this ayah was revealed due to there is not it's not necessary that there should be a contradiction between those two things it may well be that those two things are both acceptable within the tafsir of the ayah as examples and that is why also that the correct opinion is that you can have more than one cause of revelation. Even if there is a cause of revelation, the strongest opinion is that you can have more than one cause of revelation. I and I may have been revealed about someone and revealed also about someone else. And you find this about certain ayat in the Quran. Could it be that the ayah was revealed more than once? This is a different 
matter, different matter of opinion. It seems stronger that the ayah was not revealed more than once, but that the ayah could be revealed for multiple causes. And that doesn't mean that you have to choose one over the other and reject the other one. If the two causes are both compatible with the ayah and both within the realm of what the words can, can cover, then there is no reason why the ayah could not be revealed for more than one cause. And that again gives you a different understanding when you read the ayah. So the shaykh, he says, likewise, if one mentions a reason for which the verse is revealed and another mentions a different reason, it is possible that both are speaking the truth and that the verse was revealed after a number of incidents took place or it was revealed twice. It being revealed twice is unlikely. Sheikh Ruthaymin mentioned here, uh, this is against the norm. And it's not normal for an ayah to be revealed twice. And I don't think we have a specific evidence for an ayah being revealed twice. But it may be that an ayah was revealed after multiple incidents took place. So something happened to one person, and then at a similar time, something happened to another person. And the ayah was revealed after both incidents. So one person says, this ayah was revealed regarding me and XYZ that happened to me. And another person says, this ayah was revealed regarding me and XYZ that happened to me. And the reality is that both of them may well be true. Now this is where we come to a summary of this which we've got to so far. The Shaykh, he says, these two different categories of tafsir which we have just mentioned, variations in names and attributes or different categories and types, are the two most predominant types of tafsir found among the early generations which may be thought of as differences of opinion. In other words, if we look at the early generations, the vast majority of their tafsir falls under one of these two categories. Either they are focusing on slightly different aspects of the same thing, or they are giving examples without limiting the entire, without, without limiting everything to the example that is given. And that's why when you look at the tafsir of the early generations, you see that most of it is not contradictory. Most of it is actually different examples of the same thing or focusing on a particular aspect when the ayah encompasses both aspects. <clears throat> okay, now we come on to another type of difference. Another type of difference. Another type of difference is where we have ambiguous words. We have a word which is ambiguous. Such as a word which can contain multiple meanings. The Sheikh gives two examples. He gives Qaswara. In the ayah, كَأَنَّهُمْ حُمُرٌ مُسْتَنْفِرَةٌ فَرَّتْ مِنْ قَصْوَرَةٌ In Surah Al-Muddathir, 
ayah 50 and 51. Qaswara can refer to a shooter, someone who is shooting with an arrow. Or it can refer to a lion. So it can refer to a shooter or a lion. It can refer to a shooter or a lion. A hunter or a lion. The ayah says, as though they were alarmed donkeys. Any donkeys that are scared, running away. Running away from Qaswara. So are they fleeing from a lion or are they fleeing from a hunter? The ayah, the wording of the ayah encompasses both. The wording of the ayah encompasses both. It can encompass a wild donkey running from a hunter. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, a wild hunter, uh, a wild donkey fleeing from a hunter, and a domestic donkey fleeing from a lion. However, there is no harm in applying both meanings here. Because the ayah doesn't there is no harm, there is no change, or there is no difficulty in applying both meanings here. So if we say that it is donkey, wild donkeys running from a hunter, or domestic donkeys running from a lion, the two are not contradictory to one another. Both of them are, both of them are valid. And so again, when you read these as differences of opinion in tafsir, then when you read them as differences of opinion, you should understand that it may not be that those two different words are actually contradictory at all. Okay. The next example is the example of as'as. وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا as'as وَالصُّبْحِ إِذَا تَنَفَّسْ As'as or as'asa refers to the coming of the night and the, and the going of the night. And it, it refers to when the night comes and when the night leaves. I when the dawn comes. <clears throat> However, when we look at this ayah, is there any indication which indicates what the meaning of as-as is here? Is there anything which can give us more specific or give us a preference? Because the scholars differed. Some of them said, Allah swears by the night when it comes. And some of them said, Allah swears by the night when it goes, any when the dawn comes. However, when we look at the next ayah, and when the dawn breathes, any when the dawn comes, that this indicates that the meaning of as'as in the first ayah is when the night comes. Because otherwise there is somewhat of a repetition when the night leaves and when the dawn comes. Rather, it, it's easy here to prefer as'as to mean when the night comes. So that the two are the two are opposites to each other. When the night comes and then when the dawn comes. And Allah swears by the night when it descends and by the dawn when it breaks. The dawn when it breaks and the night when it descends. That makes more sense than saying the night when it leaves and the dawn when it comes. Because those two are 
somewhat of a, a repetition. The next type of way that a word can be ambiguous. So we talked about a word that can be ambiguous. We talked about a word that can be ambiguous because the word itself has different meanings. The word which only has one meaning, however, it can refer to one of two different things depending on how you understand it in the ayah. So the word itself only has one meaning. For example, most commonly, words like he, words like he, any the, the pronoun, he, huwa, he. This can be difficult to understand because part of the balagha and the eloquence of the Arabic language is that the subject is often changed without notice. The subject is often changed without, without notice. And so, for example, the ayah which is given in Surah Al-Najm. ثُمَّ دَنَا فَتَدَلَّ فَكَانَ قَابَ قَوْسَيْنِ أَوْ أَدَنَا Then he approached and descended and was at a distance of two bow lengths or nearer. After this it then says Then he revealed to his servant what he revealed. The problem here is that the first he refers to Jibreel and the second he in the next ayah refers to Allah. And this is perfectly normal in Arabic in, in the eloquence of the Arabic language to rapidly change the subject without mentioning the subject's name so without saying Allah revealed like for, without saying Jibreel descended and Allah revealed it's perfectly normal to say he descended then he revealed even though the he is different from the he the first he refers to a different person or a different object than the second he so the first one refers to Jibreel and the second one refers to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another statement of theirs, which is commonly thought to be a difference of an opinion, is when they express an opinion, each using a different choice of words. These words are similar, but not synonymous. There are very few words in the Arabic language which are synonymous. This is even rarer in the Quran, if not non-existent. It is rare to express the exact same meaning using two sets of words, and at best the meaning will be approximate, and this is from... The miracles 
of the Quran. So here the issue is the way that people express words or the way that people explain using a different choice of words. But the reality is that in the Quran there are no synonyms, there are no words that are exactly the same. For example, Shaykh Ibn gives the example of the difference between a shak or raib. Some people might say about a raib, kitabu la It means kitabu la That the word raib, doubt, means shak, doubt. And even in English, I can't even explain this to you because in reality, I'm going to say raib means doubt and shek means doubt. But the difference is that in Arabic, in reality, raib does not mean shek and shek does not mean raib, even though both of them mean doubt. They are different kinds of, they are different kinds of doubt. So one of them, any, is a particular is a particular kind of doubt and one is another particular kind of doubt. So we're going to come to this in a second. First of all, the example that is given by the author On the day the heaven will sway with a circular motion. And likewise, the difference of the difference between the word wahi, for example, meaning revelation or information that we have revealed to you or we have sent down to you. وَقَضَيْنَا إِلَىٰ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ And we conveyed to the children of Israel saying we taught to the children of Israel. In all these examples, the substitute words are similar in meaning but not exact. Revelation does not mean informing. Yani the word wahi is not the same as informing because revelation is quick and in secret. Conveying is much more specific than teaching. Conveying is much more specific than teaching. So here, it's not the case that these words or using a different choice of words necessarily means a different set of opinions. Because the words you're explaining the ayah with are themselves not exact. They are themselves not exact. So when two people explain an ayah in a way that might be perceived to be different, in reality all they are doing is using a different choice of words, a different a different expression or a different phrase to explain when in reality these phrases themselves are not exact meanings of what the ayah refers to. So conveying is not the same as teaching and revealing is not the same as informing even though someone might be asked what is the meaning of the word reveal and he may say inform and another may say something different convey or something like that. These are not differences of opinion, but they are differences in the choice of words that are used to explain the meaning of the ayah. Uh, Here, we get into something which is very difficult to explain in English. 
However, I'll try to explain the intention behind it. It's, it's quite hard to understand in English, this one. Those who, he says, from here we can see the mistake made by those who substitute certain words with other words. Certain words with, uh, with other words. For example, he gives the example of the ayah. قَالَ لَقَدْ ظَلَمَكَ بِسُؤَالِ نَعْجَتِكَ إِلَى Dawood said, he has certainly wronged you in demanding your, you, your any female sheep, in addition to his sheep. I mean, here, it's possible that a person any, would replace a word in te, in, when making tafsir of the ayah. They would replace a word and miss the purpose of the and miss the purpose of the ayah, or they would then mistranslate or misconvey the ayah to someone. And it's very difficult to explain that in, how that would work in English. Uh, but it's basically a case of using the of of the 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 word using a preposition or using a, a phrase which is not common in Arabic. And then because of that, con just basically ignoring that difference, that, that small difference, that small difference in phrase or that small difference in a preposition, and just bringing it back to the normal usage. And he's just basically glossing over the fact that there is a, a small difference in something. That small difference in itself is very, very uh, significant. And so when somebody glosses over that and they use, they, they translate the ayah in such a way or they explain the ayah in such a way which ignores that small difference, that small difference in itself is significant. It's not, it's not something that is just there for a variation in language. It's there for a particular reason. So in this case, the meaning of the ayah is that he wanted to take that you, that sheep, and add it to his sheep. However, people sometimes miss that point in the ayah because it's not mentioned specifically. It's implicit. It's understood within the ayah. Uh, and again, uh, there are examples of this. And I'm trying to find a... Let me give you an, an, uh, an example here that maybe is easier to understand. عَيْنًا يَشْرَبُ بِهَا عِبَادُ اللَّهِ this is in Surah Al-Insan, ayah number six. We very rarely, if never in Arabic, say sharibtu bihi with a ba. We rarely use the verb shariba yashrabu, if ever, in Arabic with a ba. Here the Quran uses it with a ba. In other words, the Quran mentions the verb to drink and then mentions the preposition biha with a, the letter ba. We would normally say minha. So those people who say that yashrabu biha means yashrabu minha are wrong. 
they have missed the point of the ayah. They have missed something out. When they said that, yashrabu biha means yashrabu minha. Because if it was intended to mean yashrabu minha, then Allah would have said yashrabu minha. But he chose to use aba rather than the normal phrase. So for example, in English, it's hard. If I were to say, let me just give you, just so I can illustrate, this is not the correct translation, but I just want to try to, it's very difficult to convey this in English. Okay, let's imagine that I say, what is the normal, when I say drink, it's normal in English to say drink from. I drank from the cup. I drank from the cup. If somebody said, I drank to the cup, we would instantly recognize that two doesn't go with drank. The two don't go together, generally. It's wrong when this happens in the Quran to ignore that, gloss over it, and then say that it means drink from. Because there's a very clear and specific reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to refer to that drinking with a pronoun which is not with a, with a, 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 part, a particle or with a, a, a preposition that is not the normal preposition we use. The same as saying in English, I drank to the cup. There's a reason why that is mentioned there. And that is so that it encompasses two verbs in one go. Two verbs in one go. The first verb is to drink. And the second verb is to quench your thirst. And when you say the verb to quench your, first, your thirst, you use the ba. And when you say drink, you usually use min. So what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did is to cross the two together to mean both of them at the same time. That they will drink from it and they will quench their thirst. And not just that they will drink from it. And the problem you have is that the translation of the Quran in English just says from which the servants will drink. In other words, they ignored the fact that there is a, a, a preposition or a, a phrase or a way that this wording is put together is not the norm. Exactly like if I said to you, I drank to the cup, and you then said, he said, I drank from the cup. But he didn't say, I drank from the cup. He said, to the cup. So what is the difference? There are two verbs here. One is to drink, and one is a hidden verb which means to quench. When we use the verb to quench your thirst in Arabic, we use the ba, and when we use the verb to drink, we use min. So Allah used the verb to drink, but then he used the ba, in indicating that two verbs came, these two verbs came together, or both meanings are encompassed by the ayah. So I think the key thing here is to understand, and there are many, many examples here, uh, the key thing here is to understand that we have to be very precise in the way that we convey the meanings contained within the Qur'an. And in reality, the English translation of the Qur'an that we have is, I'm not, not shy to say, extremely poor. All of the translations we have of the Qur'an are extremely, extremely poor in this regard. There are still until now, ayat, which are mistranslated completely in every famous well-known translation of the Qur'an bar none. And they're not even little things like this. 
like major, major things. Like not understanding the meaning of the word al on a word. And translating the meaning of the word al incorrectly. Check the, the standard translation of the Quran for the ayah which talks about those who believe in al-kitab. وَلَكِنَّ الْبِرَّ مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةَ وَالنَّبِيِّينَ وَالْكِتَابِ In Surah Al-Baqarah. Until now, the vast majority, maybe all now, there maybe have been some corrections, but the vast majority of them say, those who believe in Allah and His angels, uh, and the prophets, and the book. And that's not the meaning of Al-Kitab at all, not even near to the meaning of Al-Kitab. They completely mistranslated the ayah, totally misunderstood the meaning of al here. Al here is istighraq al-jins, meaning believing in all of the scripture that was revealed to Allah, that was revealed by Allah to his servants. And yet the translation in English completely misses this point and mistranslates it as being the book, because that's what it says in Arabic, the book. But those who study the tafsir of the ayah, they know that the meaning of the here is not the book. The meaning of the here is the scripture, all of the books that were revealed by Allah to his, to his messengers. And so you will see huge, huge errors when you start to go into this in detail and you read whether it's Muhsin Khan, Sahih International, or, or any of the other translations, you will see huge errors in the translation of the ayat. Like to the point where sometimes you think that they did not understand the ayah from the beginning of it to the end of it at all. The ayah is completely misconveyed yani in, an, in a way that is not uh, in agreement with any of the major tafasir. The reality is that it's hard. I don't blame them for that because it's actually very, very, very hard to get all of these nuances. Like who is it who can be aware of all of these different nuances in using of different prepositions or a, a word with a slightly different meaning i mean how do we convey the difference between raib and shek in english don't we say this is the book in which there is no doubt and if you are in doubt concerning that which was revealed to to uh, that which we revealed to our slave in english we say doubt and doubt but the word raib doesn't mean shek the problem is english doesn't give us the room to be able to do anything else with it even though there are still mistakes in the translation of the Quran, but, but even the difficulty is English doesn't give us any, any room to be able to actually, uh, to be able to actually do anything with it. You know, it's, uh, it's very, very, uh, it's very difficult to be able to convey those meanings, uh, to be able to convey those meanings properly in English. And I remember uh, I used to work with a brother who was doing a master's thesis in translation of the Quran. And he was the first person to open my eyes to the fact that the English translations of the Quran are widely inaccurate in many places. And the first time he said that to me, to, to, to me I said, no, you know, there are some small mistakes and here and there, but generally they're very good. And he showed me several ayat that he was studying in his thesis where the translations were not even remotely near to the meaning of the ayat. And it completely missing the point from, from beginning to end. And that's when you realize that actually there are two problems. Number one, we haven't made a massive effort to study these issues. 
Like in other words, we generally rely upon one translation of the Qur'an that was done by one person. And it's rare that those are reviewed, that they're studied, that we try to improve them, that we try to look at the errors that might have been made, that we try to sort of convey those in a better way in English. That's one problem. The second problem is that most of the people who translate the Qur'an are either experts in Arabic or English, but not both. In fact, he put across the point that only Yusuf Ali, and Yusuf Ali has major aqidah issues, but only Yusuf Ali could be said to have been skilled in both languages, in both English and Arabic. And he has recognition for his work in Arabic and recognition for his work in English. Other than that, there, are almost, there is almost nobody who translated the Qur'an who can be said to have been an expert in both languages as in have recognized work published in Arabic and recognized work published in English, where it's recognized for literature, not for content. And they may have published a book in English and a book in Arabic. But where the book in English is recognized for their linguistic ability and the Arabic is recognized for their linguistic ability. This is almost non-existent. That's another problem. So we rely upon translations that are never reviewed, never changed, never updated, never improved. And the second problem is we rely upon people who only have expertise in one language. And there are other problems, uh, including the, the issue of, the, the issue of um, people being scared to go away from the linguistic, literal meaning of the ayah. Uh, and, and this is to do with translation theory in some ways, that people are extremely frightened to change the order of the ayah, for example, even when the order in English is unintelligible. And Sahih International are particularly guilty of this, that they will pick an order which is completely incorrect in English grammar because they're too scared to change the order of the words around to an order that would be comprehensible in English. So they will say, and indeed, Allah is over all things competent. Try saying that in an English exam. I promise you, you'll fail. You will get zero marks in English grammar for saying, I am over all things. I am in this job competent. Or I am over this job competent. They would say, I think you need to go back to primary school and learn how to speak English. Because this is not English. I am upon all things competent. Over all things competent. You're not competent over something. You're competent in something, or competent in doing something, or something like that. First, secondly, the word competent is not an appropriate word to use with regard to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because competence is something which is acquired, and not something which you have from the, you know, from the beginning. So there are huge, huge issues in all translations of the Qur'an, and one of them is this, this insistence upon using Arabic words like when the Arabic says Allah, you have to say now in English Allah, upon. It doesn't make sense. So there are lots and lots of issues here. And the more you study the science of tafsir and the understanding of tafsir, the more you'll realize that we, or you'll, you'll understand some of the problems in what you read in English. As for the difference between raib and shek, then the word raib, it contains internal unrest and turmoil. And as for the word shek, 
it does not contain internal unrest. So the word, the word raib is, in, is when you're internally, you know, like you're internally unsettled. You doubt and you're unsettled internally. And the word shek is where you just doubt something. You're not, it's not bothering you inside. It's not like creating any internal turmoil inside. For example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, ذَلِكَ kitab," Why is it we translate it as this is the book, when ذَلِكَ doesn't mean this. Shaykh Islam said also in the statement of Allah, that book, which is normally stated as meaning, this book is another example of an approximate meaning. Because the meaning of this is not the same as the meaning of that. So when we t translate, and he's not talking about translation, he's talking about tafsir. So he's saying people, when people are asked in Arabic, what is the meaning of ذَلِكَ kitab? They say the meaning of ذَلِكَ kitab is هَذَا kitab. But the reality is those two are not the same in meaning. They are approximate. It's not wrong. It's not, it's not an error. It's just somebody trying to explain to you in an approximate way. You might perceive this to be a contradiction, but in reality, each person is simply just attempting to explain to you what the words mean. And it's not an easy thing to do. So likewise, in the translation, we have this problem also. Open Surah Al-Baqarah. This is the book. They translate it as this is the book. The reality is that ذَلِكَ doesn't mean this. But the problem is we don't have a good word in English that ذَلِكَ here uh, is referred to as being far and absent. And likewise, when we say, what is the meaning of Al-Kitab? ذَلِكَ kitab, People say, this is the Qur'an. Is the meaning of Al-Kitab the same as, same as the meaning of Al-Qur'an? Not exactly. The two are not the same. Even though Al-Kitab is Al-Qur'an. However, the two are not the same. Al-Kitab indicates something which, is, which was revealed as one piece. And it is contained in a single place. And as for Qur'an, then it is something that is recited and read. So the two are not exactly, the two are not exactly uh, the same. What is the solution to this? The solution to this is to gather together all of the statements of the pious predecessors in making tafsir of an ayah, to compare them, and then to judge which ones are similar and which ones are contradictory, which ones are examples and which ones are different approximations of the meaning, and so on. And this is much easier for you to understand than if you were to just gather one saying or two. Then the Shaykh says, even with all of the above, there are genuine differences of opinion among the Salaf, such as their differences in fiqh. However, essential knowledge which everyone requires is known to all, to the layperson and the elite. Example of this include the number of daily prayers, the number of rak'ah in each prayer and their timings, the amounts of, on which zakah is levied and their minimum amounts, which is the month of Ramadan, how to perform tawaf, how to stand in Arafat, and so on. The difference of opinion which existed among the companions in issues such as the share of the grandfather and the brothers in inheritance, 
rarely occur in the majority of rulings. Rather, most people only need to know about the share of the ascendants, descendants, and siblings and spouses. Indeed, Allah revealed three detailed verses regarding inheritance. In the first, he mentioned the ascendants and descendants. In the second, he mentioned the relatives who have prescribed shares. And in the third, the relatives that have no prescribed shares and they are full of paternal brothers. Cases in which the paternal grandfather and brothers meet are rare. This is why the first such reported instance in Islam took place after the death of the Prophet What does this paragraph mean? Again, we have to summarize it a bit quickly. The Sheikh is not talking about tafsir here, he's talking about fiqh. He's saying even in fiqh, where the scholars differed, the companions differed, the issues they differed about were not the major issues which concerned the ummah. The issues they differed about were issues that rarely even happened. Did any of the companions differ over the number of raka'at in the prayer? Did you get Ibn Mas'ud saying Zuhar is six raka'at and Ibn Umar saying Zuhar is four raka'at? No. You got them differing over a case where the father's father inherits along with the brothers of the deceased. The first time this happened was after the death of the Prophet and it's a very rare case that it happens. And therefore, in reality, like how important is that difference of opinion in comparison to all of the things that they agreed upon? So the Shaykh is saying, yes, even in tafsir, you will find the difference of opinion among the early generations. But they don't differ in the major points or the major tafsir or the major issues which are related by the Quran. They differ in maybe some minor minor points and so you should not feel disheartened by the presence of some disagreement among the early generations of islam in some of the issues just one moment because we lost the sister's audio Give it a few minutes, inshallah. So why might this difference of opinion occur? It may occur because the person was not aware of the evidence. It may occur due to something being misunderstood. Or it may occur because a person prefers one opinion over another. The reason the Sheikh is mentioning this issue even though he mentions it at the end of the chapter and even though it's not directly related to tafsir is that he's alluding to something that a lot of people become very confused about which is that people become confused as to why differences exist why is it that differences exist among the muslim ummah why do we not all just have one opinion so he mentioned uh, and he, the Sheikh has a comprehensive book on this uh, called Raf al-Malam which uh, talks about why the scholars of Islam differed and that those differences are not necessarily you know they are not uh, they're not praiseworthy to have differences but they're also it's not 
And we cannot blame them for doing the best they had with the evidence that they had. And our job is to follow the evidence wherever we find it. So yes, even in tafsir, you may find some differences, but the vast majority of those differences will be in minor issues, not major issues. The Sheikh is now going to go on to talk about the differences that exist. The differences that exist. And what I'm planning on doing here is I'm planning on continuing with this in detail now for about another maybe 25 minutes or so. Then what we'll do is we'll skip to the summary at the end and go over whatever points we haven't done in summarized form. Because you can see it's not an easy, it's not an easy text to explain. There are, especially when you talk about Arabic grammar, it's hard to convey those points across to people uh, in English. So we're going to do as best we can. The two categories of differences with regard to the tafsir of the Qur'an relating to the source, narrations and deductions. So there can be two differences in tafsir. The source of the first difference is narrations and the source of the second is deductions. At times we are able to distinguish between authentic and weak narrations and at times we are unable to do so. This latter part whose authenticity we cannot be sure of for the most is unbeneficial and to delve into it is unnecessary. As for the knowledge which is essential to the Muslims then Allah has placed sufficient signs showing them the truth. As an example of that which is unbeneficial and has no clear evidence is the difference regarding the color of the dog belonging to the people of the cave. It's not necessary for us to know what the color of the dog was, nor does it make any difference to our religion if we know the color of the dog of the people of the cave. Likewise, which part of the cow was used to strike the slain man? So when you read in a book of tafsir, differences of opinion regarding which part of the cow was used to strike the dead man, you can be sure that this is of no real benefit to you. And these differences really don't harm you at all, whether the dog of the people of the cave was black, or whether it was brown, or whether it was white, or whether it was tan color, or whether it was any other color. It doesn't matter to you at all. It doesn't make any difference. And therefore, the fact that there are differences of opinion over it doesn't really change your approach to the ayah or to the tafsir at all. The measurements of the Ark of Nuh, how big was it? How many people fit inside of it? How long was it? How wide was it? What type of wood was used? It possesses no benefit. Similar to this is the name of the boy who was killed by Al-Khidr. So whatever is taken from authentic narrations from the Prophet ﷺ in this regard, like the name of the companion of Musa being Khidr, and in the fact that Khidr is the name of the companion of Musa, this is taken from authentic narrations from the Prophet ﷺ, is accepted. 
as for which is taken from the people of the book, like the narrations of Ka'b, and so on, and Muhammad ibn Ishaq and others who take from them, you cannot accept or reject these narrations without clear proof. It is reported in the Sahih that the Prophet ﷺ said, if the people of the book narrate to you, then do not attest to their truthfulness nor reject them. Rather say we believe in Allah and His messengers, otherwise you may reject something truthful or you may attest to something false. This is in Sahih al-Bukhari. So when the people of the book narrate something, so now we're looking at the different narrations. So now we're seeing some differences. And in these differences, we see that the source of one of them is from the people of the book. And the source of one of them is from a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. We have to determine whether that hadith is authentic or not. And with regard to the people of the book, we do not affirm what they say, nor do we deny what they say. Unless the Qur'an or the Sunnah affirms it, or the Qur'an or the Sunnah denies it. Likewise, if the narrations of the Tabi'un, the generation after the companions, irrespective of whether they are taken from the people of book or, or not, differ, then some of their sayings do not hold greater weight than others. Rather, authentic narrations from the companion, companions are more reliable than narrations from their students, as there is a stronger possibility that the companion heard this from the Prophet ﷺ. Furthermore, the companion's narrations from the people of the book are less than that of the tabi'un. So here, when we see a difference of opinion, we do not give greater weight to something over another except with an evidence. So why would we give greater weight to one of the tabi'in over another of the tabi'in if they really do differ and there's really no way to reconcile between them? In this case, we don't say that some of their opinions hold greater weight and authority than others. Rather, we prefer the narrations of the companions over those of the tabi'in because of the fact that the tabi'in narrated more from the people of the book and the companions did so less and the companions are more likely to have heard it from the Prophet ﷺ and the tabi'un less and the companions are more likely to have experienced it in person and the tabi'un less. But we don't prefer one opinion over another. Uh, the point being, in such differences where we cannot tell what is authentic and what is weak, is just as unbeneficial as narrating a hadith in which a person cannot ascertain its authenticity. As for the first category, in where you are able to establish the authenticity of a narration, this is possible in those matters which are essential. Many narrations in tafsir and hadith and the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ are false as they contradict authentic narrations. This is the case with narrations and what is deduced by other methods. The point being there are clear signs that show the authenticity or weakness of those narrations which are essential and required by the Muslims. And you should be aware that many narrations in tafsir and in hadith or in the seerah and history Many of these narrations are not authentic. And that is why Imam Ahmed said, three things contain no chain of narration. Tafsir, seerah, and history. Tafsir, like Asir wal-Maghazi, I mean the, the, the expeditions the Prophet took part in, 
and history. That's because the majority of narrations in these topics are not narrated with authentic chains of narration. And therefore, and it's very important that we distinguish between those things that are narrated with authentic narrations and those things which are not narrated by authentic narrations. However, there is one way that we can give some preference or precedence to some of these disconnected and weak opinions over others. So generally we understand there are a lot of disconnected and weak opinions, but there are ways that we can give preference to some of these weak opinions over some of these other opinions. One of them is to realize that there are people who really specialized in this particular field. And that is why. Why do we take the narrations, for example, of Ibn Ishaq in Sirah? Or why do we, you know, why do we, even those, even those scholars of hadith who declared Ibn Ishaq to be weak, which is not the correct opinion, but those who declared him to be weak, they still accepted his narrations in Sirah. Why? Because they recognized his precedence in these particular issues and Sheikh Islam goes into detail over the different people who are known for different things and what they were known for but the bit that concerns us is tafsir he says as for tafsir then the most knowledgeable of people in this field are the people of Makkah the reason for this is that they are the students of Ibn Abbas like Mujahid and Ata and Ikrimah and Tawus and Abu Sha'fa and Sa'id ibn Jubayr and the people of Kufa from the students of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud some of these are distinguished scholars from the scholars of Medina who specialized in tafsir were Zayd ibn Aslam and his students included Imam Malik and his own son Abdurrahman and Abdurrahman was the teacher of Abdullah ibn Wahab. The Shaykh then goes into detail on the science of hadith uh, in terms of verifying different ahadith and whether they are weak or whether they are authentic. And this is a little bit of a tangent and we're not going to go into it too much here uh, because I think it'll just, it's just going to confuse everybody. But in general, the Sheikh is pointing out that even when you have a collection of weak hadith, it's quite possible to strengthen some of them with others. So an example of this are the marasil. And I'll just summarize what the Sheikh said in, in brief. The Mursal is when the Tabi'i, the person from the Tabi'in, narrates directly from the Prophet So the person who is at the level of being a Tabi'i from the generation after the companions, narrates directly. So obviously there is a break in the chain. That break in the chain may contain a companion, it may contain another tabi'i, it may contain anyone, we don't know who it contains. However, there are ways to support these different chains. If different people from different places narrate the same incident, there are ways to support these different chains. And so the Sheikh goes into a lot of detail, a lot of detail about talking about how we can discuss or how we can uh, affirm 
the content of some of these different narrations. And that is something which is difficult to do because we have in tafsir, once you get beyond that core content and you get into the, you get into the sort of the, the stuff which is on the fringe, on the edge, which is not core content, which is not unanimously agreed or is not reported from the companions. And instead you have it reported just, you know, from here and there, then it's extremely important to verify the authenticity of these narrations and then to be able to prefer some over others, either because of the quality of the person narrating it or because of multiple sources coming together to narrate the same thing. Then we come on to the second category, and this is the last one I'm going to cover in detail before we go into the summary, which is differences relating to reasoning and deduction. So the first one relating to narrations. So you have to be aware of what? You need to be aware of the fact that tafsir is one of the most difficult, and you could even use the word dangerous, sciences in terms of narrations, because it contains huge numbers of narrations which are not verified or checked finding ways to verify those narrations and finding ways to prefer some over others is part of the science of tafsir by which a person can excel in tafsir to be able to prefer for example as zuhri said someone said someone said someone said someone said none of them have any chains of narration how do we prefer some over the other by gathering them together by putting one by gathering those that say the same thing by looking at the sources, by looking at the quality of the person who narrated them. There are ways for us to prefer some over the other. And this is one of the major reasons why we get differences of opinion, is we are weak narrations versus strong narrations. The second category are reasoning and deduction. And Sheikh Islam mentions that the problems in reasoning and deduction came from two primary sources. Number one, people who had certain ideologies. As we know, in the time of the companions, there was almost no deviant ideology. It appeared towards the end of the, the age of the companions. However, in the time of the Tabi'un and onwards, the number of people who had deviant beliefs and ideologies increased until the, the longer you get through time the more and more and more and more and more deviant beliefs people have that affects the tafsir of the ayat you get differences of opinion in areas where a particular person has a particular ideology a particular belief and that ideology influences the way that they understand or make tafsir of the ayah and the second problem is a group of people who interpreted the quran without context in other words they simply interpreted the quran based on their knowledge of arabic and nothing else 
They simply interpreted the Quran based on the knowledge of Arabic with nothing else at all. So they did not take in mind the context, where did the words come from, who were they addressed to, what was the ayah revealed for, any of those sciences. They completely removed their, their knowledge of, or the knowledge of the context of, in which the ayat were revealed, and simply just referred to the literal wording that is mentioned, just as an Arabic speaker would. Because everyone agrees that speech can vary in meaning depending on who is speaking and who is being addressed. So it's very important that when we make tafsir of the Qur'an, we bear in mind the context. Do you remember before we give a simple example of as'as, meaning more than one thing. However, when we look at it in context, that, the, that it makes much more sense to interpret it as the night when it comes and the morning when it arrives, because the two then balance each other out. So it's not possible just to take a word and say, okay, as'as means this, for example. Or salah means dua. Salah means dua, for example. Or hajj means a journey where you intend to go to a, a significant place, a place which means a lot to you. These are, these are things that you have to bear in mind the context in which they are said. And it's interesting that the Sheikh he said the first group concentrates on meanings and the other concentrates on words. And that indicates to you that proper tafsir of the Quran is a balance between words and meanings. One concentrates on meanings, i.e., they take the ayah and they completely, you know, they completely take the ayah away from what it is meant, totally. They totally take the ayah away from its proper meaning. And so what they do is they look for a meaning which is suited to them and then they totally ignore the words of the ayah and they bring a meaning which is suitable to their particular ideology. The other group totally ignore the meaning and put all of their emphasis upon the words. It's possible that this word here means dua even though it says salah. It's possible that it means dua, because linguistically, you can say, salaytu, I prayed, meaning I supplicated. And so they, they look at only the words, and they completely ignore the meanings. Whereas it would emphasize to us that the correct way of dealing with these issues is to both consider the words and to consider the meanings in the context in which they were revealed to the Prophet And the Shaykh made specific mention of the Mu'tazila. He mentioned a number of groups. He said the Khawarij and the Rafidah and the Jahmiyyah, the Mu'tazila and the Qadariyah and the Murji'ah. But especially the Mu'tazila were known for their influence on tafsir and interpreting the Qur'an in the light of their beliefs.
and particularly with regard to the preference of intellect over the text. So as an example, probably one of the most uh, famous, probably the most famous book of tafsir that is written by the, by the Mu'tazila is Al-Kashaf by Az-Zamakhshari. And this is a well-known book of tafsir. And there are others, but the one that probably most people would recognize uh, is Al-Kashaf by Az-Zamakhshari. And this has, I mean, it's, it's authored upon Mu'tazili belief. And so much of the differences that you find in there in tafsir are differences in order to suit the beliefs of the, of the Mu'tazila who preferred their intellect over, I mean, over, uh, over other things, over the text. Sheikh Ibn Taymin said, Al-Kashaf by Az-Zamakhshari is a famous and widely available book. It excels in terms of language and eloquence, but as the author mentions, it conforms to the beliefs of the Mu'tazila. However, the only person who will be able to discern this is the one who has knowledge of their beliefs and the beliefs of Ahl Sunnah. And one of the most famous things they mention about uh, Zamakhshari, Sheikh Nuthimin mentions it, and Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abad used to mention this to us all the time. As Zamakhshari says in the tafsir of as Zamakhshari says, whoever, this ayah, that whoever is saved from the hellfire and entered into paradise has been successful. As Zamakhshari says, which success is greater than entering paradise and being saved from the hellfire? If you read it, you think, wow. What success is greater than being entered into paradise and saved from the hellfire? However, the intention behind that statement of a Zamakhshari is to deny that the believers will see Allah in Jannah. And so when he made the statement, there is no reward greater than being entered into paradise, the intention is that there will not be, you will not see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in paradise. That is the intention behind the statement. However, when you read it, you don't, you don't see that in, in it because you're not aware of what his beliefs were and you're not aware of how he sought to peddle those beliefs. So the question is, can we benefit from such books? And the answer is, like Sheikh Ibn said, the only person who should benefit from these books is the one who is extremely gifted and eloquent and knowledgeable in the issue of their beliefs and the beliefs of Ahl Sunnah. And if a person then has that knowledge and occasionally benefits from some of the grammar mentioned by Zamakhshari or some of the eloquence mentioned by Zamakhshari, then there's no harm in that for the one who is a scholar of aqidah and tafsir and understands the difference. However, the one who is not, has not reached that level should not be reading these books, nor should they be reading the books of the Asha'ira or the books of the Maturidiyya or any of the other books of tafsir which are authored upon a methodology other than the methodology of Ahl-Sunnah. Rather, you stick to the books of Ahl-Sunnah in tafsir unless and until you reach such a level where you are able to distinguish between the truth and the falsehood in them, in which case you only use them when it is necessary. And this is a benefit we used to learn from our Sheikh uh, Ali Tuwajiri, he used to tell us many, many times, do not go into the books of tafsir. He used to tell his master's students, his doctorate students, do not go into the books of tafsir 
of the people of innovation unless you do not find this benefit anywhere else. And he used to blame people that people would, you know, for example, when they were doing the tafsir or grammar of the Quran, the first thing they would do is reach for a zamakhshari and say, why do you need to reach for a zamakhshari? You can find 95% of the grammar issues and eloquence you need in a tabari. Why do you need to leave a tabari and go and pick up a kashaf? You don't need to do it. So the reality is some people have a habit of liking to read books that they know are not correct. And they just enjoy to like, oh yeah, you know, like I just benefit from the grammar or whatever. But you might think you're benefiting from the grammar and end up denying ar-ru'yah, denying seeing Allah Because ultimately these books are full of a lot of evil. So they are suitable for a person, for example, if you're studying a doctorate in tafsir, and you have searched through all the books of tafsir upon the sunnah and you didn't find this particular grammar point and you found it with a zamakhshari then you can quote a zamakhshari from the point of view of some grammar issue or some issue of eloquence but as for having his book as your first reference on the shelf that you go to every time you want to know the meaning of an ayah then this is something which is not appropriate for anyone to do regardless of the level of knowledge they have likewise the ordinary person who you know gets to a point where this person is is uh, you know uh, referring to books which are above their understanding this is very easy to get misguided and ultimately I, I personally think that this is one of the major causes of misguidance among people today that you see them for example the person will say and I get this a lot I'm just busy you know debating with this big Christian preacher I'm just busy looking at the works of Aristotle. I'm just busy going through Al-Kashaf by Zamakhshari. I'm just busy uh, reading the arguments of so-and-so. I'm just going through this book. And they, they put themselves into a fitting. And then usually they come and they write an email and say, Brother Tim, I got myself confused. I was reading this book by this preacher and now I'm confused and now I think I believe what he believes and I don't know what the truth is or I was debating with this person and now I have come to believe what they believe or I'm confused, I don't know how to answer this question. And usually they will get a very nasty email back from me. Really, they will get a very nasty email back from me saying, why did you start this process? Now look where you are. You're in a stage where now you're drowning because you put yourself into these books. You said, let me read the Bible so that I can become a great preacher in Islam. Which great preacher in Islam read the Bible? And nobody needs to read the Bible. And he, why do you need to read the Bible? And he, who, which of the scholars from the Salaf excelled in reading the Bible? I give you the answer, none of them. And he, this is just something that the later people did and then later on see where they ended up. And wallah, I'm not shy to say some of the big preachers that we knew of that debated with the Christians and read the Bible and whatever, and now, aqeedah-wise, they have become extremely deviant and completely lost. And even some of them turn to atheism and some of them turn to all sorts of crazy beliefs. After these were the people who we put on the stage and we said to them, you know, debate with these Christians, and they said, yeah, I know more about the Bible than anything else. Yeah, late. I wish he had spent the time reading the Qur'an instead of the Bible. He would have found enough to respond to the Bible and without needing to go into this. So we're not saying that you should never ever take from the children of Israel or you never ever take a quote from a Zamakhshari or something like that. But as for your average person just picking up these books and going into them because there's a benefit in them, how many people do this? 
How many people read books? For example, the books of Sayyid Qutb and others, and they say, Wallah, there's a benefit in them. Wallah, there's a benefit in them, I agree, and there's a benefit in a Zamakhshari, and there's a benefit in the Bible if you look for it hard enough. But the reality is how many people go astray by reading these books. More people than take any benefit from them. So if you want to take benefit from it, leave it to the ulama. Leave it to the major scholars of aqidah and tafsir and so on to read these books and to take the benefit from whatever is in them and give that benefit to you without you needing to put yourself into danger. As for in the beginning of your studies, you go and start taking the books of the, the deviant people in tafsir and then reading them and then trying to understand them, it's very easy for something to enter into your heart. And more so, the books of the non-Muslims. Now somebody says, I'm just reading, I was just, you know, reading the scholarly works of Professor so-and-so's tafsir of the Qur'an. I'm not going to read Professor so-and-so's tafsir of the Qur'an. If he's not a Muslim, his tafsir didn't benefit him anything. Because if he had benefited anything from it, by the end of that tafsir, he would have said, La ilaha illallah. But as for him to get to the end of that tafsir, and still remain a non-Muslim, then that tafsir did not benefit him anything. Not, and therefore, I doubt that it will benefit me anything. That's not to say that there do not contain some elements where he may have given the right tafsir, or where he may have explained a benefit that was missed by other people who gave tafsir. But you leave this for the people who are capable of doing it, and you don't end up exposing yourself. And again, YouTube, people are doing this also. Same problem is people expose themselves to so much doubt and shubhat and confusion. And they watch everybody. Oh yeah, I watch everyone. You know, I watch a preacher from this, a preacher from this, a preacher from this. And I'm trying to learn how to debate and how to argue with them. This is a big problem. So my, our sincere advice is one of two things. Number one, that you don't read the books of tafsir which are not upon the sunnah until you reach such a level where you are extremely fluent in both your own belief and the belief of the person whose book you are reading. Number two, that even when you reach that level, you don't read their book unless you don't find the benefit in any other book. Because the reality is that the benefits that people say that they find in, for example, as Zamakhshari or anywhere else, can easily be found in other books of tafsir in the majority of cases. And it's only in the minority of cases that you can find some grammar issue or something that is only mentioned there. And then again, when it's mentioned there, you have to ask, like Sheikh al-Islam highlights, is it a primary importance? Or are you really reading as a makshari to find out the color of the dog of the cave? If that's the case, some people are reading this book to find a benefit which is of no benefit. And they come out, they're like, I've read this whole book, and now I'm totally convinced that it was a black dog. It makes no difference whether the dog was a black dog or a white dog or a yellow dog or any other color of dog. It doesn't make any difference. And therefore, it's not necessary for us to expose ourselves to such danger and then later on complain about it when simply we are looking for a benefit that is not essential to our understanding of the Qur'an. And one thing you should take from what Sheikh Islam said is that ultimately the, the, the matters of tafsir which are important, we have them all. And there are very little difference of opinion in them and they're very easy to understand. The matters which are fringe issues, minor issues, furu, small things, you know, the particular understanding of why there's a dhamma here, why there's a kasra here, and it's a minor 
a minor issue. Yes, this you may find in some of the books which are not as praiseworthy as others. But this is, should be the person's methodology. And I still see people, I'm still getting regular emails from people who are still falling into this methodology. Of I was just reading this book by so-and-so and I've become confused and now I don't know how to answer. That's different from a person who's put in that situation. And sometimes it happens you're just put in that situation. It's not your fault. You're just put there. Like for example, you didn't, you didn't intend to be in that situation. You were, for example, just talking to someone about Islam and they raised an issue with you which you couldn't answer. Here, it's praiseworthy. You come to me and say, Tim, you know, I was, you know, go, I was just talking to a person about Islam and I invited them to Islam and they said to me, how can I become a Muslim when Islam has one, two, three? This is praiseworthy because you didn't intend to put yourself, you didn't put yourself in danger. And this person, I believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will inspire them with the answer by means of someone, by means of research, by means of learning. But as for the one who puts themselves into danger, then this person is blameworthy, not praiseworthy. <coughs> now, what we're going to do now is just to, just to finish by going through the summary. At the end of this book, which I gave you, page 188, at the end of the book, not the booklet that you have, but the, the electronic book you were sent, page 188, there's a very nice summary of the book. So we've gone through as much detail as we can. We now have five, ten minutes left. So instead of going through the detail, now we'll finish off by going through the summary. And the summary is very nice, it very, very, very quickly we can go through what is left of the book by in summary form. Okay, we're going to go start with point number 35 for those of you who have the electronic copy or those of you who want to refer to it later. Point number 35 is where we ended. So we, we, we got all the way up to point number 34. We have 35 up to 43. That's all we have left to do. Point number 35. The most authentic method with which to explain the Qur'an is with the Qur'an. And if not, then with the Sunnah. So this tells us that our preference in tafsir is tafsir al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an. The tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. For example, وَالسَّمَاءِ وَالطَّارِقِ وَمَا أَدَرَاكَ مَا الطَّارِقِ النَّجْمُ الثَّاقِبِ Allah swears by the sky, by the heavens, and by الطَّارِق. And then Allah says, and what will make you know what الطَّارِق is? الطَّارِق is a bright, shining star. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains to us the tafsir of the word. So after that, there is no need for anyone to go later on and say a tariq is, because a tariq can be lots of things. A tariq is a person who knocks on your door. 
At-Tariq is a person who comes at night. Any person who, who turns up at night at your house is called At-Tariq. That's why we seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَمِن كُلِّ طَارِقٍ إِلَّا طَارِقٍ يَتْرُقُ بِخَيْرٍ From everyone who comes knocking at night except the one who brings good. So Tariq has a lot of meanings. But the meaning of a Tariq in the ayah is the bright shining star. Because that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains it with. So the best kind of tafsir is tafsir al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an. To let the Qur'an explain the Qur'an. After that, the sunnah. After that comes the tafsir of the Qur'an with the sunnah. So again, when you're reading a book of tafsir like Ibn Kathir, ask yourself, this tafsir that I'm reading, is it tafsir al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an? Is it tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an? Or is it tafsir of the Qur'an with the sunnah? If you do not find the tafsir of the Qur'an, the tafsir of the ayah in the Qur'an, and you don't find the tafsir of the ayah in the sunnah, which books of the sunnah should you first of all look at? Look at the books which are the jawami', the comprehensive books, like Al-Bukhari, Muslim, and At-Tirmidhi. You'll not find tafsir generally, you'll not find much tafsir in Abu Dawud or An-Nasai or Ibn Majah, because these are primarily concerned with ahkam rulings. You'll only find tafsir as it relates to halal and haram, nothing else. But in Bukhari and Muslim, you'll find tafsir of the ayat. You'll find uh, likewise in Jami' al-Tirmidhi, in Musnad al-Imam Ahmad, you'll find tafsir of the ayat. So tafsir of the Quran with the Quran, then tafsir of the Quran with the Sunnah. And these two are near in level in reality because the Sunnah is revelation and the Quran is revelation. So tafsir of the Quran with the Quran because it's somewhat easier and clearer and tafsir of the Quran with the Sunnah. If you don't find tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an, and you don't find tafsir of the Qur'an in the Sunnah, an example of tafsir of the Qur'an in the Sunnah is the tafsir of the ayah, الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِمَانَهُمْ بِظُلْمُ أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمُ الْأَمْنُ وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ Surah Al-An'am. Those who believe and do not mix their belief with oppression. It is they who will be given safety and they will be guided. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ said that the oppression mentioned is the oppression that Luqman said to his son, Ya Bunayya la tushrik billah, inna shirk la dhulmul azim. Oh my son, do not make a partner with Allah. Making a partner with Allah is a great oppression. So that, that, what does that indicate? It indicates that the meaning of the word dhulm in the ayah is shirk. Who said it is shirk? The Prophet ﷺ said. Therefore, this is tafsir of the Quran with the Sunnah, tafsir of the Qur'an with the Sunnah. If you do not find tafsir of the Qur'an in the Sunnah, and the Prophet did not make tafsir of the Qur'an, then you go to the companions, because as we said, they are the closest of the people to understanding the Qur'an. They rarely narrated from Ahl Kitab. They didn't speak about what they didn't know. They primarily spoke of things that happened to them or happened with their direct knowledge. Therefore, definitely the tafsir of the companions is stronger, bearing in mind the authenticity. Because be careful, everyone knows the tafsir of the companions is strong. So you might find Ibn Abbas said, Ibn Abbas said, Ibn Abbas said. But you have to establish which of those things Ibn Abbas really said and which of those things are not authentic. Because ultimately, 
there's no doubt that it was, it's very easy for a person to fabricate a tafsir and say, or Ibn Abbas said. But we have to also prove that it is reliable from Ibn Abbas, and we have also likewise with the Sunnah, we have to prove that it is reliable from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There are three types of traditions with regard to Bani Israel, the Bible, or the traditions of Bani Israel. Number one, the type which tr its truthfulness is attested to by our own sources. And a type which our own sources reject. And a type which does not fall into the previous two. So the stories of the children of Israel, for example, they say that the... For example, they say that the wife of Imran had a particular name. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about the, uh, the wife of Imran in Surah Ali Imran. The wife of Imran. They give the wife of Imran a particular name. That particular name that they give, is it affirmed in the Quran? No. Is it affirmed in the Sunnah? No. Is it affirmed by one of the companions? No. Is it denied in the Quran? No. Is it denied in the Sunnah? No. Was it denied by one of the companions? No. Therefore, what do we say? We neither affirm it, nor do we deny it. Because if we deny it, we might be denying something which is true. And if we affirm it, we might be affirming something which is false. So the stories of the children of Israel come into three categories. Those which the Quran confirm are true, and those which the Quran confirm are false, or our sources confirm are false, and those which are neither. That's one issue. Now, an example of this again, Adam eating from the tree. The stories of the children of Israel tell us that Adam ate from the tree. Is this true or false? It's true. Because Allah told us about it in the Quran. They also tell us that the fruit that Adam ate was an apple. Is this true? Allahu A'lam. We do not say it is false, nor do we say it's true. Because we do not have a proof that it was an apple, nor do we have a proof that it wasn't an apple. Then Sheikh Islam says, you may quote from this third type, even though most of what it contains is of no immediate benefit. And this is vital to understand. You can quote, you can say, the Christians say it was an apple. Ibn Kathir will do this. Ibn Kathir will say, the Christians quote it's an apple. Ibn Kathir will say, for example, the wife of so-and-so was called Rachel. But do we know for sure that she was called Rachel? No, we don't. She, it's said, it's from the stories of the children of Israel. However, is it of any benefit? No. In reality, it is telling us, does it matter whether Adam ate an apple or a banana? It doesn't make any difference to us. He ate from the tree, and what happened, happened. That is what's important. It's not important to us whether he ate an apple or a banana or a berry or anything else. It doesn't make any difference to us. We can narrate that it was an apple. We can say that the people of the book say it was an apple, and Allah knows best. There's nothing wrong with narrating that, but most of it is of very, very little benefit to you. Very little benefit. It's very rare that you read a narration from the Israeliyat and say, Wow, you know, this, this has directly benefited me something in the tafsir of the ayah. Mostly, 
it is additional information that you can listen to, you can bear in mind, but you really don't need, don't need it uh, specifically. Okay, point number 38. The best way of mentioning differences of opinion is to gather all of the relevant opinions. Mention the correct opinion while refuting the incorrect, then stating the fruit and benefit derived from the discussion. This ensures that the person does not prolong discussion over insignificant matters which possess no benefit and divert from what is more crucial and important. One who does not gather all of the different opinions on a particular issue has presented an incomplete argument, as the truth may be in what he missed out. Similarly, the one who does not point out the correct opinion has also performed an incomplete task. If one intentionally authenticates something incorrect, he has ascribed lies and falsehood, and if he does it out of ignorance, he has made an error. Similarly, whoever discusses differences in issues which hold little or no benefit, or mentions varying opinions, even though they possess different wordings and all deserve into one opinion, has wasted time and has incorrectly exaggerated the matter. Such person is like a person who wears two robes, both of which are stolen. So the Sheikh is warning against various different things. Number one, he's warning against not collecting all of the opinions on a matter. This is true in hadith and it's true in tafsir. If you don't gather all of the opinions, you will struggle to be able to point out the correct one. Because the truth may well be in what you have neglected. So the first thing is we do not blame the scholars of tafsir for gathering together all of the opinions in one ayah under the ayah. In fact, this is praiseworthy because the truth may well be in or, or the more opinions you gather, the more likely it is that the truth exists in one of those opinions. However, it is incumbent on you if you decide to gather all of the opinions together, then you must point out the correct opinion and explain why or what the benefit is. If you don't do so, then you are also blameworthy because you are just putting doubt into people's minds. For I can say, for example, so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and just leave you with it, and you go outside. You don't know which one to do. You feel more confused. Whereas if I say there are three opinions, and the strongest one is this one, then not only have I presented a fair analysis of the truth, but I've also given you the right answer so that, inshallah, nobody leaves the room feeling confused. Likewise, do not discuss little opinions that are of little benefit. Like, don't dedicate, you know, 12 pages to discuss the color of the dog of the people of the cave. Because it isn't of any benefit. Any, a brief discussion of the fact that the, the, the children of Israel said this, and some of the other scholars said this, and we don't know which one is best, so Allah knows best, it's of little relevance. A paragraph, a line is okay. But as for dedicating pages and pages and pages to things that have no benefit, then this is something which is blameworthy also. Point number 39. If the scholars are unable to find the explanation of the verse in the Qur'an or the Sunnah and do not find any relevant commentaries from the companions, then many of the scholars would refer to the Tabi'oon. But no doubt when you go into the Tabi'oon, it becomes harder. The easiest is Qur'an by Qur'an, then Qur'an by Sunnah, then Qur'an by the companions, because the differences are very small. When you go into the Tabi'een, it starts to get more than that. 
However, there are ways that we can that we can prefer some over the other. Uh, and this is uh, alluded to in point number 40. Shu'ba ibn al-Hajjaj al-Wasati, rahimahullah, one of the imams of hadith. And others have said the statements of the tabi'un in matters such as practical rulings are not authoritative. I mean, for example, if one of the tabi'un says to you that this is the right answer, that's not, that doesn't give you a proof in Islam. The fact that one of the tabi'un said this is right does not give you a proof. So how can it be so in issues of tafsir? This means their opinions are not authoritative over others who hold contrary opinions. However, if they all agree, it is sufficient as evidence. So the Shaykh is saying, yes, there's no doubt that Mujahid has no virtue over, for example, Tawus. There's no way we can say, okay, if Mujahid said it, it's correct. Every time Mujahid and Tawus differ over something, then every time we take Mujahid over Tawus. It's not the case. We can't, we can't prefer one over the other. However, if they all agree on something, then it's definitely sufficient as an, an evidence. And that is the majority of cases, as we explained in the earlier part, that actually when you see a difference between Mujahid and Ikrimah and Tawus and Ata, the difference is actually not a difference at all. They actually all agree upon the same thing, but they're giving you different examples or different focuses uh, upon it. But we have to be aware that you cannot use one of the tabi'een as a proof over another. So you cannot say Ata was wrong because he is contradicted by Mujahid. As you can say with regard to, for example, Ata was wrong because he's contradicted by one of the companions or he was contradicted by the Prophet or contradicted by the Quran. That you can say. But you can't say that one of the tabi'een was wrong because he is contradicted by another one of the tabi'in. Rather here you have to evaluate the authenticity, you have to evaluate preference over, you know, how do we weigh one opinion over the other, and so on. Tafsir, point number 41. Tafsir of the Qur'an, purely based upon reasoning, is haram. That is tafsir of the Qur'an that is based upon nothing but what you think the ayah means is haram. And that is also relevant for us, even if we're not making tafsir of the Qur'an. It's very, very relevant uh, for us because we see this sometimes in the halaqat, not here, but in the UK we used to get it a lot. Sit in a circle and everyone just tell you what, tell what you think the tafsir of the ayah is. You know, like you sit in a circle and it's not an exercise, that's okay as an exercise if, the, if I say, I'm going to tell you the right answer at the end, you tell me what the tafsir, you tell me, you tell me, okay, you are right, you are right, you are wrong. That's okay. But as for just saying, let's all get together and just whatever you think the tafsir of the Quran is. And this is not a valid way of making tafsir. Whoever speaks about the Quran using his own reasoning has placed a burden upon himself which he need not bear. He's treading a path he has not been ordered to tread. Even if he stumbles on the right meaning, he's still wrong. You know, if you were to just interpret the Qur'an based on your opinion and get it right, you would still be sinful because the method you used of getting it right was in itself wrong. The reason for this error is because he did not approach the matter through its proper means. This is similar to the one who judges between people with ignorance. His end is in the fire even if his ruling is correct. In other words, a person who is a judge and has no knowledge even if the ruling is correct, they may still end up in the hellfire 
because they judged without ignorance even though their ruling they judged without knowledge even though their ruling was correct and the last point these and other authentic narrations from the pious predecessors all state the impermissibility of speaking of tafsir without knowledge however there is no harm in speaking about tafsir if one possesses the required linguistic and religious knowledge and that is for that reason it's there are a number of varying statements reported from these scholars this does not imply contradiction for they spoke about knowledge they, they spoke about matters they had knowledge of and they remained silent about things they had no knowledge of so if someone is a scholar of the arabic language and likewise is a scholar of tafsir yani of the tafsir of the the companions and the tafsir of the early generations then if this person is, um, is knowledgeable in these two and then they speak about tafsir they, they make a tafsir of the quran this is acceptable because they're speaking about what they have knowledge of they're speaking about what they have knowledge of okay we're going to finish with one particular um, piece of advice like just in the next one two minutes this is the end of the treatise as we said i think we finished about two-thirds word for word and the last third we finished in summary form the last issue i want to talk about is for us what are the best books of tafsir in the next module that is the next subject sorry which is coming next week we're going to start doing practical tafsir practical tafsir of some of the surahs of the quran which books of tafsir um, I asked this question to someone more knowledgeable than me in the science of tafsir. Uh, someone who I, I, I was fortunate enough to meet and study alongside, and he's been here to Kalima to give some talk, Sheikh Abdul Basit. I believe he's been to give a seminar in the Urdu language. And Sheikh is uh, now finishing his doctorate or finished his doctorate in tafsir. And I asked him if you were to recommend a book of tafsir to the ordinary person to benefit from like your average person which book of tafsir would you recommend he said without doubt the tafsir of sheikh ibn Taymiyyah. this is what he said to me he said without doubt the tafsir of sheikh ibn Taymiyyah. he said in terms of the fact that it has enough content it has a lot of content like as in me personally i prefer tafsir al-sa'di but Tafsir al-Sa'di is just like three or four or five words for each. It's like three or four or five words or a line for each ayah. Sheikh Ibn first of all, you have correct aqidah. So you don't have to worry about getting some misguided idea about the asma'u sifat. Secondly, you have enough detail in there to be useful, but not so much detail that you become confused. And lost and what we're going to be doing the problem is that this tafsir is mostly to the best of my knowledge almost only available in Arabic tafsir al-sa'di uh, is a summarized tafsir which I also uh, Sheikh Abdul Razak recommended for us he said if you recommend to the ordinary people a book of tafsir recommend for them tafsir al-sa'di so personally what I would say is Tafsir al-Sa'di is only partially available in English, although it is being translated. I believe around about one-third of the Qur'an has been brought into English from Tafsir and Imam al-Sa'di. Um, 
you, it's in different places. Dar es Salaam did the Juz 29 and 30, and then there's an organization in America that did Surat al-Baqarah up to Surat al-Ma'idah or something like that, and it's still being produced. So Tafsir al-Sa'di is an excellent place to start. What is Tafsir al-Sa'di? It is a summarized Tafsir. That means that you are not going to get more than two or three lines explaining an ayah. Maybe a paragraph at most, generally, and you're not going to get any differences of opinion at all. The Sheikh's just going to say to you, the ayah means this, the ayah means this, the ayah means this. You will not get the reason the ayah was revealed, mostly you will not get, like, it's just very, very simple and very easy to understand. Why do we recommend it over other summarized books of tafsir? Number one, because of the belief again, the aqidah being correct. Number two, because the shaykh brings benefits that are not found in other books of tafsir. In other words, you can find benefits in tafsir al-Sa'di that you will not find in Ibn Kathir. It's not the case that al-Sa'di is just like Ibn Kathir melted down. You will find original tafsir, yani points of tafsir, which are not mentioned in any other book of tafsir. So you'll find benefits of tafsir in, in a Sa'di that you will not find easily elsewhere. So that's one thing. After tafsir al-Sa'di, tafsir Ibn Uthaymin. Highly recommended. Because really, it really does give you a, a, a really nice balance. So it'll talk about fiqh, it'll talk about rulings, it'll talk about some of the reason why the ayat were revealed, but not so much information and differences that you become lost or confused. Then Ibn Kathir. Then Ibn Kathir. Why? Because Ibn Kathir will mention, especially the full version of Ibn Kathir, will mention differences of opinion, will mention weak opinions, will mention Israeliyat, narration from Bani Israel, uh, and other things. So Ibn Kathir. And finally, for those who are able, and you would say something like Al-Tabari. Al-Tabari being the hardest of the, three, of the four, but being the most beneficial of the four if you can access it. What of that is available in English? As we said, I don't believe the tafsir of Shaykh Muratayameen is available in English at all, except for maybe small pieces here and there. Tafsir al-Sa'di is partially available in English, and tafsir ibn Kathir is available in both full form and summarized form. What then can you use instead of tafsir, the other books of tafsir for the English language? So in Arabic, I would say those four are a good base. They're not the only four. There are many, many others. They're just four that I would just... You know, therefore, that I would particularly recommend, you know, people to be fr to frequently read. However, what do we do in English? First of all, I would recommend you start with the Muhsin Khan translation of the Quran. Why? Why would you recommend Muhsin Khan? I'll tell you why. Muhsin Khan took his translation of a, by summarizing at Tabari, Ibn Kathir, and you know various others, uh, various, various other uh, trans, uh, tafsir of the Quran. So really what you can take from this is actually, you can actually get a summary of those books of tafsir in Muhsin Khan. That's why it has all of those brackets and you know footnotes and like curly brackets and square brackets and it's quite hard to read. But if you read it as a book of tafsir, it's actually, as an introduction, it's quite good. Then get yourself any summarized book of tafsir 
in English, which is which has the right aqidah, that means not al-jalalain, avoid al-jalalain for now, unless you're comfortable with, you know, the, the problems that exist within it. Go to something like this. Uh, there are books like the si simple tafsir. I think Zubda tafsir is translated in English now. Like one one book tafsir. It's like you know one volume or two volumes, very small books of tafsir in English from reliable publishers. So you get some from. You know, various publishers, Al Hidayah in the UK, I think, uh, Dar as Sunnah in the UK have one, um, maybe Dar as Salam also have one. They, they're reasonable, you know, like they're from reliable sources. Then after that, you, you can get the summary of Ibn Kathir and then you can get the full version of Ibn Kathir. The summary removes the differences of opinion and the Israeliyat and stuff like that, so that's kind of helpful. And the full version of Ibn Kathir gives you the whole lot. What we're going to do starting from next week is we're going to do tafsir contrasting between As-Sa'di, Ibn Uthaymeen, and Ibn Kathir. So we're basically going to take these three sources and look at how they make tafsir of a particular surah, a particular set of ayat, so that we can understand how to deal with these books or how to deal with these sources of tafsir. So you'll see how As-Sa'di will give you, you know, just straight to the point, and how Ibn Kathir will give you everything or lots of things and how Sheikh Ruthaymeen in the middle will give you somewhere in between and so you'll become used to dealing with these books of tafsir and hopefully they'll be translated into into English uh, and I believe there's always efforts going to translate things into English so I'm sure eventually those will become transmitted into English so that's all we have time for at this time uh, we don't have time for any questions at this point uh, but inshallah we can take them on the way out so we stop there and Allah is the best. There's a few. There's a few. I don't remember the names in English. There's there's one called Zubda to Tafsir. Um, but I don't remember what it's called in English. But it, there is a one called Zubda to Tafsir. There is a one called Aysar uh, Tafsir or like the, the simplest type of Tafsir. But the main thing is a it's a reliable like it's a reliable publisher. Like, so get it from one of the one of the I think Dar Sunnah in the UK have uh, have this book Zubda to Tafsir. You know, these are all summarized, like one volume, like just basically they just give you the ayah and one or two words for each.